Imagine it's the 1950s for a moment. What do you do when you're 14 years old and your mother says, hey, we know you're gay and you can either get married right now or be sent away to Utica. That's where they would send queer people to quote unquote cure them. So what do you choose? Well, if you're McGorrick Kennedy, you're smart and you pick a third option. What she did was lie about her age using a forged baptismal certificate. Then she took the entrance exam for the US Air Force, passed, and the very next day found herself in Waco, Texas, where at 14 years old, she began training for the Air Force. She was free, at least for a moment. As you can guess, things didn't quite go as planned. Like Magora, her mother was a very determined woman. She soon tracked her down, took her back to New York State, and Magora did get married. But she also proceeded to live a life that, on top of raising five children, included being a part of the Black Panthers, being at Stonewall the night of the uprising, and also eventually going back to school to become a reverend. So the now 83-year-old Reverend Kendi joins us on LGBTQ Night today. I'm Jeffrey Masters. Let's hear it. I want to start back when you were 14 and your mother gave you that ultimatum that you could either go to a mental institution to try to cure your gayness or get married. You know, at that age, 14, how aware were you even of your own sexuality? You know, how were you thinking about it? I knew I was different, but I didn't think there was anything wrong with me. I was always able to go to my mother and talk to her about my little fantasies about my girlfriends and whatnot. She never change the expression on her face. You know, like to this day, I always watch people in their expressions. She just never, she never said it was right. She never said it was wrong. Nothing came about until rumors started going around town about me and the girls. And my mother was mortified. I mean, she was just, you know, I mean, she was just so, so angry that she just insisted I was going to get married. And this would be the way to cure this, as she called it, obsession. I mean, 14 is such a shockingly young age to get married to, like, us now. I mean, did it feel that way back then? Well, back in those days, let's face it, parents always had to say so over their children, which is one of the things that I'm so happy about in today's time. Back in those days, parents really had to say so over their children. So, therefore, was my mother signed the papers in Saratoga at 14 years of age. I managed to escape for like two weeks. I had a um, forged baptismal certificate that said I was 18, and I took the Air Force test in Albany, New York, and passed it. And I really thought I was free because in those days, once you pass the test, they shipped you immediately. So we were all shipped off to Waco, Texas, and I really thought that I was free. <laughs> Whoa, so you were 14 and had just joined the Air Forces and were in Waco immediately. Yeah, we were all shipped to Waco, Texas. And in the <laughs> two weeks' time, my mother had had private detectives trying to find out where I was at, and that's where they found me. So her whole thing was, we were on the plane on the way back to Albany Airport, and she says, you will get married in June. So the freedom didn't last that long. <laughs> However, my one-upsman on my mother as it went along was she had a person for me to marry. And I was determined not to marry that person, but I knew that I had to get married. So I had been backwards and forth, like in New York. My grandfather on my father's side lived in New York and Harlem. 
I had seen this little storefront church. And of course, I never heard like what we call dance music coming out of a church. So that fascinated me. And I would go back and forth to there. And this one particular um, Sunday when I got in, the elder or the mothers of the church was talking about the fact that he was not married. And if he didn't get married, that you know, they were going to find another minister because they did not want a single minister being the pastor of their little church. So I told him, I told him about what they were thinking because nobody had told him about it. But I told him and I said, the best way, you know, you can, you can save your church is to get, we get married and then you won't lose your church. So he agreed to that. And so I called my mother and told her, oh, I'm in love. I'm going to marry a minister. Then, of course, naturally, she was thrilled. And how long were you married to him? Oh, God. Very shortly. Because what happened was, I think it was about maybe three months to the... To my recollection, uh, honey, listen, I'm 83 years old, and like a lot of times I have to like really, really reach back and get it. <laughs> Literally, he told me like I was his property, and I was his wife, and I was his property, and that I was, you know, to subject to him. Well, long story short, when I came out to him, he was like, oh my goodness, he's going to pray for me, and everything that you could think of that was worse, and I was on my way to hell if I didn't repent, and so forth and so on. So the thing that really got it was he had slapped me and of course I fought him back and he took a knife and was going to try to cut my face and that didn't happen and I threw my arm up. I have a scar on my arm now to protect my face and I'm screaming for help. Of course the people heard you know what was going on. I ran into the laundromat and when the police got there there was this older now this is one thing I won't forget this older sergeant on the police force, and he kind of squinted and looked at me, and he said, how old are you? You know, the way kind of like boxes. And so I said, I'm 14, you know, and he said, what? And I told him about, you know, where my mother was and what had happened. We got married and so forth and so on. Long story short, the marriage was annulled, although it was consummated. But I, at that, by that time, I had so much anger, it was unbelievable. What, what was your anger directed towards? Really kind of toward my mother angry about the fact that my mother, you know, made me get married and the fact that she never said that anything was wrong with me until it started getting around Saratoga about, you know, me chasing the girls. You were born in 38. I think for like the late 40s, early 50s, you know, knowing that you were attracted to women and not thinking there was anything wrong with you, that really, that surprises me. That stands out, I think. Oh, back in those days, the whole thing was like, everybody was threatened with Utica. Utica Upstate, New York, is like Bellevue is in New York City. It's a place for mentally insane, and everybody that was gay was threatened with that. I mean, the fellas, they got a, the, a lot of them ran off and joined the service. That's why I ran off and joined, because I always hang with the fellas, you know. So they ran off and joined the service. A lot of them went into the priesthood. My girlfriends, they went into the convent. I mean, everybody had, had sort of uh, planned out escape routes, you know. Uh, but I was the only one that didn't, you know, mine did not go through. <laughs> So, like, at what point did you start to find, you know, community and other gay people? I would say, like, after my children were born, especially my first two, because it was, like, back and forth between Saratoga and Canada. I hadn't really gone fully, like, into show business yet, but I could work temp work for New York State Department of Taxation and Finance. What happened was Thursdays. Thursdays would be the day that people would wear a certain color to know who was gay and who wasn't. 
the guys would either wear white or purple socks and the women like you know we had to wear suits and things and we'd always have like a little boutonniere or something on either purple or white and everybody knew so on thursdays after work everybody would carpool because the nearest gay bar at that time was in newburgh new york and we used to carpool down to newburgh new york and there was a place in Newburgh called Yesterday's Inn. And that's where we would go and we'd hang out, go probably till about maybe 7, 8 o'clock, and then make it back, you know, make it back up to Albany and those of us living in Schenectady and Saratoga so we'd get to work the next day. That's such a funny way to, like, signal to other people that you are gay with, like, the socks and the boutonnieres. Uh, like, who was the first person to tell you about that? One of the women in Saratoga was a friend of mine, and she worked for taxation and finance, and she was gay. Well, no, she was bisexual. She said, but there's a group of us. She said, now, on Thursdays, this is what you do. And so it was like, more or less like word of mouth, you know, different people if they wanted to identify, you know, and nobody knew anything (laughs) except us. We would look for the color of the day. (laughs) And so then as I got older and began to leave Saratoga and started coming down toward New York, I was shocked at the fact that, you know, the gay guys was in one place and gay women was in other places, whereas in upstate New York, you know, like everybody, you know, gay women, gay men, they hung together because, you know, as the old saying goes, safety in numbers, right? (laughs) And then so you mentioned that at this time you had two kids. This was with your second husband, right? Yes. I knew my second husband. We were like kids. He was in Catholic school. And of course, I was in Protestant school, but we always knew that we were were different. And, And so we became close friends. Years later, ironically, what happened, he was in the Army, and he was a paratrooper. (sighs) He was talking about that if he got discovered, he was bisexual. So if he got discovered, you know, he was going to be kicked out of the Army. He said, not a problem. We we just get married. So second time around. (laughs) They used to have the saying, cover girl, cover boy. And that was the way people that were gay, that's what they did. And so you had five kids together. I mean, despite you like both being gay and like just like having this like cover spouse, would you consider it like a happy marriage? Well, we were happy, yeah, because uh, my husband for a long time was with his lover, and of course I was with mine, and like we, <laughs> you know, we, we were doing all right until I got pregnant with his child. Then after that, he was saying, "Well, we're no longer going to be gay," and you know, he started to dictate about what was going to be, and I was like, "Oh no." No, 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 this is not, you know, this is not going to work because I am who I am. You are who you are. We're going to make the best of what you call a bad situation, but I'm not changing. By that time, I said, I've gone through too much. Well, the thing was, (laughs) I'm going shopping. And this guy walked up behind me and and tapped me on the shoulder. You're Eugene Kennedy's wife. And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, and who are you? And he was like, well, bitch, I am the other. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. Who are you calling a bitch? You know, and I just started to almost mopped up the supermarket with him. And I said, no, nah, I know good and well. It's time for me to get out of here. And when I got back, when I went back to the house, I packed up my kids and he wanted to know what was going wrong. And I told him, I said, the lies that you told. I said, you went and told that guy that I have forbid you from seeing him. You know, and he told me that he was the other, the other wife. And I'm like, You can have him because I'm out of here. I'm not going through this. Well, his mother didn't know anything about our undercover thing. And so when I went back to Saratoga, his mother told him that I was his wife and I had to do it. He said, do. She said, you bring her back here. And if you have to, beat her. 
Wow. When he came banging on the door, my I was living at that time. I was back in Saratoga with my mother and my grandmother. And uh, he came in and he said, you're going back to Schenectady with me. And I said, I'm not going anywhere with you. And he snatched me and he slapped me. And I took my grandmother's iron skillet and knocked him across the head and knocked him out. They had taken Saratoga Hospital where he had a concussion. And I said, my father didn't put his hands on me and you're not about to, you know, and I'm not going anywhere with you. And I told my mother, I'm going to do what I know what to do. And that was sing and dance. And because of racism being the way it was in the United States, most of the time I was a singer, a dancer. I did MC. I was a comedian in Canada. And I worked usually six or seven months out of the year. Whereas here in the United States, I'd be lucky if I could get something for one night. <laughs> no, because of racism. That's a really big difference. Big difference. And so you you had f- five kids at that point? No, there was four. Bernard was the last, uh, my last child. So, so did you have to, like, come out to your kids as gay? Oh, yeah. I told them. Yes, listen. I let them know early on. My mother, again, you know, she's this motto, oh, my grandsons, what are they going to think? I said, well, I don't care what they think. Thing is, says, I'm paying the cost to be the boss, and I'm taking care of everybody. And by that time, I was taking care of her, too. I said, they're going to know from me. They're not going to hear it in the streets like you heard it in the streets about me. They're going to know. If they don't like it, they're going to get their education when they get 18 there's the door. And that's the way I raised them. Did you know many other gay people with kids back then? Yes, I did. But most of them were in the closet. And like when I was involved in Stonewall, a lot of them, you know, like I lost a lot of friends because <laughs> they were still in the closet and they were living that double life. And I'm, you know, for me, this was over. You know, Stonewall to me was like coming home. By lost friends, you don't mean dying. You just mean like they stopped being friends. Oh, they stopped being friends because they were still in the closet. They were gay women and they were living the, that, that same double life thing. A lot of my friends, their, their kids, you know, they never understood what it was. They had a lot of aunties. <laughs> you know, it was mommy and auntie. And then there was uncle so-and-so, you know. <laughs> yeah, I just, oh, this is so confusing. But I wasn't having that with my children. I mean, you brought up Stonewall. That was 1969, and you originally heard about it. You were driving in a car and heard about it on the radio. Yes. So that was a live broadcast. Was it unusual to hear about a police raid on the radio? Well, what had happened by that time, what was happening was, you know, the broadcasters in those days, they had no problem calling people faggots and bulldogs. And they, what they said was, a bunch of faggots are, are, are raising hell in, in Greenwich Village. Whoa. That's that's what came over the radio. And I'm like, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, this sounds like something I think I want to be involved in. So I have been, yes, I was driving uh, my little in-the-closet friends up to P-Town because that's where, you know, everybody that was in the closet would go for the summer to be with their lovers, especially in the educational field. These were teachers. And so I got them to the nearest town. I gave the taxi driver the money that they had given me, and I said, get them to P-Town. I'm going back to New York. And I did. And I got into the fray on Saturday night. And so you drove down there in your car. You know, there are a ton of people out. There's really small streets. I don't want to ask dumb questions, but like, where did you park? Oh, my goodness. It, the streets were like, I when I got back into the city, I, parked, I must have parked my car way uptown somewhere. And then I think I 
took the subway. No, no, no. I took a bus. And then even by that time, they was like rerouting the traffic. So I got off. So I got out of the bus. And when I got out and got down to where Stonewall is, and a long story short, they talk about what's happening with transgenders today. But if it had not been for transgenders and people of color, you know, we wouldn't have a gay rights movement today. I mean, there was so much fighting that night and like the police called in reinforcements. Like, were you scared for your safety at any point? Well, I'm an original Black Panther. No, I was not. I had been in the Black Panther Party, me and my kids. And so, no, I, I didn't have any fear. All I, all I thought about was like, hey, we, we're finally going to have our liberation one way or the other. That's where my head was. <laughs> oh, so you like learned how to like defend yourself. Yes. I believe it was the like assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. that like spurred you to join the Black Panther Party. Is that right? That's correct. I was in the Boston and the New Haven chapter, and a lot of a lot of the Panthers and those chapters were like nurses, and a couple of them were doctors. And see, so many of those things that happened in the Black Panther Party that they're even doing today. Like for instance, you have the walk-in clinics. The walk-in clinics was the idea of Fred Hampton, who was assassinated in. Um, the Black Panther Party uh, in Chicago. And the thing was that mostly all of the different party leaders had came to Chicago to see what was the working model of the walk-in clinics. Wow. And it was during this time that J. Edgar Hoover was ordering, bring him Black Panthers dead or alive. The things you're working for while in the Black Panther Party, does it feel like we're like fighting for the same things to you? Like, what is your assessment on how much progress we have or have not made? Well, things are better than they were, but they still have a long way to go. What I'm concerned about now is that young gay people and transgenders, especially transgenders of color, being thrown out of their home, they committing suicide, these little young people who feel like they have nothing to live for, and then also getting rid of conversion therapy. Back in the day when people were put into places like Utica and Bellevue, Men were castrated, and women were given hysterectomies. And then their so-called gentler way of trying to not performing hysterectomies was to start using conversion therapy. So now this is something they started doing gentler, uh, so-called gentler, in the early 70s and whatnot, but it's still going on today. When you joined the Black Panther Party, this was the late 60s, were you able to be an out lesbian while you were working with them? Yeah, because I was up in, like I said, I was in the I was in the Boston chapter, and when this witch hunt went on, which was led by Eldridge Cleaver, who they later found out was a plant in the Black Panther Party, uh, you know, and they started throwing the Black Panthers, you know, those that were gay. And a lot of them had come back from service, you know, they had been overseas and come back. And they were getting thrown out. And so I just told my, I told my commander, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm taking my sons and I'm going because I did, you know, I worked too hard and ain't nobody throwing me out of nothing. So we left. And they said, well, we'll protect you. And I don't need protection. I need to be open and I am not going to, you know, subject myself to this. So it sounds like you decided very early on that you had no interest in living a life in the closet. That's right. That is correct. I always said I like the sw- like the salmon swimming upstream. <laughs> Hopefully that swimming has gotten a little bit easier, though, as like times have changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things are better today than they were, but we still have a long way to go, especially as the time is to get rid of conversion therapy. I mean, I cannot believe this is still going on. Yeah. 
And so eventually you went to seminary school, and I've seen you described as like the quote-unquote gay reverend. Is that a label that you use for yourself? Well, it was kind of like put on to me, but it, it, it's okay, because I was out there too. <laughs> One of the things that happened, I did attend New York Theological Seminary, and then I was put on social probation there, and then eventually left. They said I asked too many questions, and when I asked the questions, I had proof about some of the things that they were saying that was incorrect. But when you go up against professors and those that are, you know, those are in charge, they first, they put me on social probation. And then finally, you know, I said, look, you don't need, I don't need social probation. I have proven to you everything that I said and told you where you could look it up. So I'm leaving. So again, you know, that's me. It's, uh, you, nobody's putting me out of no place. I'll leave. And I know you were initiated as, in your 70s, as a crone goddess. I don't actually know what that means. Do you mind explaining? Yeah. When I went into the temple at that time in New York was Reverend Goddess uh, Charmaine. And she used to have these services in Manhattan. And I started attending and really got to know about the goddess. I mean, I always felt it inwardly, but to really like honoring the goddess or the mother this is something that is Native American and it is also African. Native Americans honor Mother Earth and Father Sky. And this is something that I had kind of grew up under because my mother part Native American and she had always wanted to be so accepted in the church community and the black community and whatnot. So those things were kind of like something that was kept in the house, you know, and, you know, to say what stays and what's done in the house stays in the house. You know, we never talked about that outside. As I gravitated toward People's Temple, which is what Reverend Goddess had founded, I really, it was it was more or less like an awakening within me. So, yes, I got initiated Goddess in uh, 2011, and this is my anniversary year. I received my crone two years later. Crone meaning that I was the oldest of all the women <laughs> to get initiated, and to be become a crone is to become like what they call the mother wisdom. You know, you mentioned your age. Are you thinking about death? No, thinking about death. Well, actually, you know, the thing is, if that be the case, everybody dies every night. When you go to sleep, there's no guarantee you're going to wake up in the morning. But the whole thing is that it is, you know, death is used as like a scare tactic. And it's really nothing to be afraid of. Uh, yeah, I'm 83 years old, you know, uh, I expect to be around for a time, but if not, it's okay, because I've had a good life, and um, um, as far as I'm concerned, hey, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. This has been fantastic. Well, always, you know, I always tell, like, this is an, another thing that I always tell the young people, especially young gay people, is love yourself, live your truth, and laugh in the face of adversity. That way, stay focused on who you are and don't let nobody turn you around. <laughs> and that was Reverend Kendi. You can hear more about her story on the PBS documentary called Cured. Cured tells a story of how activists fought back against the, at the time, very mainstream idea that homosexuality was a mental illness, one that needed to be cured. The documentary also features Dr. Charles Silverstein, who was a recent guest on our show. Here's what he had to say about that. There was a, a period before I got to college 
where I wanted to change and I went into therapy for the purpose of changing. Obviously it didn't work and it never works, but it was what most people did in those days, to change you into someone who was quote normal, meaning heterosexual. All I accomplished is I had the opportunity of going to bed with some nice women who thought I was an appropriate match, but I wasn't. And that was Dr. Charles Silverstein, who was 86 years old. He's also famous for co-writing the book, The Joy of Gay Sex. So if you want to check out that interview, it is in our podcast feed. And the documentary that he and Reverend Kenny are in is called Cured. Again, it's on PBS. We are brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week.